Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll talk about the critical role that changing demographics play in our fiscal and economic future. Our guest is Richard Jackson, president and founder of the Global Aging Institute. That, uh, that name may be familiar to listeners of this program, because Richard was the author of a series of issue briefs produced by the Global Aging Institute and the Concord Coalition called The Shape of Things to Come. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson will join the conversation with Richard Jackson. And then in our final segment, Tori, Steve, and I will discuss some of the latest economic developments. Well, uh, as I said, you may be familiar with Richard if you listen to this uh, podcast. From 1995 to 2010, Richard was the uh, co-author of the Concord Coalition's Facing Facts Quarterly. He regularly speaks on aging-related uh, issues, and he's widely quoted in the media, including on this program. He holds a PhD in history from Yale University. Richard, Tori, and Steve, welcome back to Facing the Future. You know, I recently saw a New York Times article that said that the uh, median age in the United States is the highest that it's ever been, which I guess is not too surprising since we've been warning about the aging of the population for years. But but it is, uh, you know, it did set off a little alarm bell in my head that we need to go back and uh, and think about mm -hmm. the the demographics. Um, and, and by the way, to our WKXL New Hampshire audience. New Hampshire is one of the oldest states. Maine, I think, is the oldest, oldest median age. But uh, New Hampshire is, is right up there as well. So anyway, uh, you know, we've been we've been following the debt ceiling and <laughs> getting all wrapped around that axle. Uh, but uh, while we've been doing that, you've been keeping your eye on demographic developments, as you always do. So give it get get us up to speed. Uh, what, what are what are you seeing in the numbers? Well, I mean, I think the United States really stands at a crossroads here. Um, that we have the highest median age we haven't had is surprising, is, is, is not surprising, excuse me. Um, we've known the population is aging for a long time. Um, what's changed is that it looks like it's going to age a lot more over the next few decades uh, than most, uh, most experts thought it would. Um, until quite recently, um, the United States was really an outlier among its developed world peers. Uh, we had um, a replacement rate. This is from the late 1980s until the Great Recession that sort of hovered between 2.0 and 2.1. Um, that's close to the replacement rate needed to maintain a stable population from one generation to the next and it was higher than in any other developed country except Iceland, New Zealand, and Israel. Um, 
On top of this relatively high fertility rate, we also had substantial net immigration. Together, uh, high fertility, relatively high fertility, substantial net immigration, um, seemed to ensure that the United States, despite the aging, Bob, of yours and my troublesome baby boom generation, <laughs> um, would nonetheless remain the youngest of the major developed economies for the foreseeable future. Um, and would also, unlike most European countries and unlike Japan, would still have a growing workforce and a growing population. No longer. Since the Great Recession, the fertility rate has collapsed. It's fallen in every year uh, uh, since 2008, except for 2014, and then a minor uh, uh, uptick uh, in 2021 and 2022. It, it's now uh, at around 1.65, which is about the OECD average. Meanwhile, net immigration, you'd never know this from the chaos at the southern border, but net immigration um, since the Great Recession uh, has also uh, fallen substantially uh, since what it was um, in, the, uh, uh, in the 90s and early 2000s. So you put those two developments together, and unless they reverse, the United States will age considerably more, as I said, uh, than we previously thought. Let me just glance at some numbers here. Um, the Social Security Administration projects that the elderly share of the population will hit 23% by 2075. Um, but they assume a 2.0 fertility rate, so a big rebound. At a 1.8 fertility rate, which is what the CBO assumes, that 23 would be 26. At a 1.7 rate, which is roughly what we are now, a slight improvement, it would be 29%. And just for context, um, it's, it's like 17% like now, I think. Is, is I think it's 17% yeah. now, midway through the baby boom's retirement. So we thought that we'd plateau. Yeah, there'd be a steep increase in the elderly share of the population during the baby boom's retirement. That was expected. But that we would then plateau um, at around 21 22 23%. Uh, which is high by historical standards, but very low compared to where other developed countries were heading. Now it looks like we're, we're going to look more like Europe. Um, and that has big implications on the fiscal front and on the economic front. Well, you, touch, you touched on two subjects that we'll get back to when we talk about what to do about this, which is you know, fertility rates and, you know, just the declining growth of the workforce mm -hmm. and uh, and uh, immigration. I'm, I'm I'm wondering about the um, developments on the workforce participation of the uh, senior population, because, you know, you've mm -hmm. written about that as kind of a and we'll get back to this again. But one of the positive developments pre-pandemic anyway, was that it looked like the baby boom generation was staying in the workforce longer. So the workforce mm -hmm. partition, participation rate, and, and you and I are testimony to that. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, and has that uh, changed at all uh, post-pandemic? Well, no, you're absolutely right. Pre-pandemic, labor force participation 
um, by older adults, uh, uh, early 60s, but also 65 and over, had become a big driver of economic growth. Um, incredibly, uh, 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 over the past, past decade, pre, pre-pandemic, um, workers age 65 and over accounted for um, something, I don't have the number in front of me, but something like three-fifths of all growth uh, in the labor force. And that was for two reasons. Number one, just simple numbers, right? You have the large baby boom cohorts moving into the elderly age bracket. You also had a larger share of them working, so rising labor force participation at older ages, uh, postponing retirement, staying productively engaged in the market economy longer. The pandemic uh, stopped that in its in its in its tracks, um, and whether uh, uh, sort of extending work lives and work spans will still be a driver of economic growth uh, in the coming years is something uh, that's really now in question um, and would make policies that help support that shift all the more important. Tori. Sure. I wanted to go back and talk about the fertility rate just for a second. Um, You mentioned that there was this big change in fertility uh, here in the United States, but in in looking, uh, the same has happened in other countries, other developed nations, especially those that have really generous childcare subsidies and, and pater- maternity and paternity leave. So if you look at this, you know, from 65,000 feet across the globe, it's not necessarily, at least globally, that, you know, having a child is, is, is more expensive. Something else is afoot aside. I mean, is it is it purely just, I mean, did suddenly in 2008, women decided you know, I'm not going to get married until I'm 35 and, you know, have children at 39. I mean, what, it, it, that can't just be the the sum total of what happened in, in, in 2008. You know, there, you, obviously you've got the recession, but the effects of that recession have faded. Did, has anybody asked the question other than, you know, women are marrying later and having small, smaller families? Is there was such an abrupt change in 2008? Is there something else afoot? Yeah, but you raise a really interesting point. Now, I, I think to understand what's happened, um, we, need, we need to go back a bit, a bit further uh, in, in time. Um, along with rising affluence and rising educational attainment, especially for women, fertility rates come down. And indeed, they came down everywhere uh, in the rich world, um, um, beginning uh, actually in the late 19th century and early 20th century. Um, that's, that's not surprising. And there also, uh, have been declining more recently over the past few decades in most emerging markets as well. Okay. Um, but some countries for a while ended up around two and some, which is the replacement level about the replacement level and some fell much further. So I think, I think what you want to ask about the United States is maybe not why, it came down, but why it stubbornly remains so high for so much longer than it did elsewhere. And I think there are three big um, explanations for that. Uh, One is greater religiosity uh, uh, of the US population. There is a very strong positive correlation between degree of religious conviction and the fertility rate across all of the world's major monotheisms. Two is optimism about the future. 
um, in the future economic prospects for yourself and also for your children. And three um, is how easy is it for young people to establish independent households and launch careers? All of that changed um, starting around the time of the Great Recession. America's re less religious, um, it's less optimistic, and most importantly, it is a hell of a lot harder for millennials and now homelanders uh, to launch careers and establish independent households than it was for boomers or Xers at their age. And I think that's what's driving it. There is still a big gap when demographers poll women and say, how many children would you ideally like to have? How many children do you expect to have? Those numbers are still higher than the number they're actually having, right? Which, which suggests that, um, you know, the, the economy makes a difference. Um, and, and by the way, just a minor correction, you may have misspoken unintentionally, but countries that do make it easier uh, through public policies for women to balance career and family do have slightly higher fertility rates than those that don't. Um, so that can right, but the, I, I what I had read yeah. is that the, the drop in fertility happened across. Uh, they might have slightly higher, but they've all yeah. So yeah, I mean the, the drop in fertility from from six or seven to 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 two is explained by sort of the forces of modernization, right? Uni universal uh, edu education. Um, rising incomes, emergence of the middle-class ethos that emphasizes investment in the quality rather than the quantity of children, mass entry of women into the labor force, all of that brings down the birth rate. Um, but then some countries stabilize um, at, at a somewhat higher level than others. And interestingly, the countries with the lowest fertility rates are not the countries, uh, or, or rather, rather, let me put it, the reverse way, the countries with the highest fertility rates are not the countries with traditional family values. They're the countries that have made it easier, right, uh, for women, women to balance both of the things that most need um, and want to do, which is to have a career and have a family. And those that haven't, um, you could still try to keep them barefoot and in the kitchen, end up with less of both, right, less uh, fewer babies and fewer working women. Steve, let me bring you into the conversation. Yeah, so Richard, you, you mentioned uh, fertility expectations. That's been a big source of controversy in looking at, at what fertility projections, you know, to, to use and in going into the future. I mean, yes, you mentioned Social Security Administration is assuming that fertility rates are going to recover from their current level of about 1.65, and they're going to go back up to 2.0, whereas the Census Bureau and the Congressional Budget Officer are you know, in the neighborhood of 1.8. And you know, traditionally, SSA has used fertility expectations as sort of the basis for their optimism. They would point to these surveys um, and these surveys go back several decades. They, they ask women, you know, how many children have you had? And how many more children would you like to have? And traditionally, those numbers have been, you know, greater than two. And so, you know, if, if expectations don't change, you can assume that women will ultimately have the two kids that they expect to have. But, you know, it turns out that, you know, as you follow these surveys over time, the most recent surveys, I think from 2019, actually are showing among women 
particularly younger women, 20 in their early 20s and up even, even to their early 30s, they are having fewer children and the number that they want to have doesn't appear to be making up for the fewer that they've already had. And so you're getting numbers that are actually barely equal to two. And when you look at the fact that many women don't actually have the number that they want to have, they tend to have fewer, that tends to suggest that given declining births, declining expectations, and generally the shortfall between expectation and realization, you know, you're looking at fertility rates closer to the 1.8 level. And so, you know, it's just interesting that, you know, these, these surveys, you know, they're, they're not that, you know, hopefully, you know, the, the, the surveys will, will turn out, you know, expectations will, will be fulfilled. But if you look at, you know, as Tori mentioned earlier, women are having, getting married later and having kids later. And at some point, it just becomes too late to have the second and third child. So, you know, I, you know demographers have a, have a saying, fertility delayed is fertility denied. Um, if, if you delay uh, uh, childbirth into your early 30s uh, or mid 30s, you're likely to have fewer children than you once expected to have. Um, so fertility delayed is, is, is fertility denied. And it's also worth noting, I think you're suggesting, Steve, that the, the gap between um, ideal and actual realized has sort of been narrowing over time in the U.S. Um, this has happened in other developed countries as well. And in fact, the gap in many has disappeared. And over time, if you're in a, a society with a low fertility rate for a generation or two, um, sort of the, the social norm for ideal family size uh, uh, changes. Um, the ideal gets, gets smaller. Uh, and so over time, the ideal and the expectations converge with the actual at a, at a low level. All I was suggesting is there still seems to be some sort of a window maybe <laughs> to the extent you have a gap between actual and expected for policies to make a difference, right? policies that help young people and especially women balance uh, work and family responsibilities. Um, but uh, uh, my, my own view um, is that expecting a rebound to 2.0, as SSA does, as the Social Security Administration does, based on the expectational data, is, well, uh, let's just say that it's wishful thinking. Yeah, I think we've probably editorialize that point a bit uh, when the Social Security trustees uh, issue their report every year. Yeah. But it, re it really is an important. Uh, I mean, you don't think of the Social Security report as, as something about fertility. You think, you think about old people and benefits and that sort of thing. But it really is that underlying factor of fertility is, is one of the key factors in making the long term projections. Well, you can look, look at the sensitivity analysis in the Social Security reports. You can tease what I'm about to say out from that. Um, in the long run, it's fertility that wags the dog, okay? That, that has a much, right, it, it, plausible differences in fertility assumptions have a much larger impact long-term. I'm talking over 50, 75 years. Um, then differences in, in, in expectations for life expectancy, um, or even economic growth. 
probably the two, the, the second biggest to probably be economic growth. Well, we're going to get into that uh, in the uh, next segment. We're going to have to take a break. Uh, at the end of our first segment here, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Richard Jackson, president of the Global Aging Institute, about the critical role that demographics play in our budget and economic future. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Richard Jackson, president of the Global Aging Institute, about the critical role of demographics uh, in the nation's fiscal and economic future. Uh, Richard, when we left off, uh, you were talking about sort of leading into what the role of demographics, particularly fertility, has to do with some of our long-term projections. And I thought uh, we should start this segment by just sort of looking at the impact of demographics on the economy and on the budget. Well, let, let's start with the budget. I think Concord does some work on the budget, don't they? Yeah, we, we sometimes dabble in the budget. <laughs> okay. Well, graying means paying. It means paying more for pensions, more for health care, more for social services, for social services and especially long-term care for the frail elderly. Falling fertility, together with rising life expectancy, translates into a higher age dependency ratio, right, of, of the ratio of elderly to working age adults. And all other things being equal, a higher age dependency ratio translates directly and proportionally uh, into a higher tax rate for pay-as-you-go benefit programs like Social Security, um, and, and Medicare. Uh, in, in, on the retirement side, it's, it's, it's fairly straightforward. You've got that, you know, more retirees relative to workers, the cost rate goes up. Um, in healthcare, you've got additional kickers, right? Not only do you have more elderly relative to more workers, but the elderly per capita spend three times as much as the non-elderly or consume three times as much in healthcare services, um, and 20 times as much in long-term care services. Uh, so demographics has that, that, that big extra kicker, um, potentially on, on healthcare growth. Uh, so you know, we already are facing an unsustainable fiscal outlook. Um, the recent deterioration in the demographic uh, uh, outlook for the United States with the decline in fertility rates and decline in immigration um, and consequent likely greater aging of the population will just make this unsustainable outlook even more unsustainable. That's the budget. Um, the economy is a little more complicated, uh, but we can jump into that if you want. Sure. It has something to do with falling uh, workforce growth, I think. And well, it, it, it's more it, complicated it, uh, than that, too. But. You know, we're talking about fewer babies. Well, fewer babies eventually means fewer workers, <laughs> relatively speaking. Um, so declining fertility translates into, over time, slower growth in the working age population. Slower growth in the working age population, all other things being equal, all, the, all other things here being labor force participation rates by age. But slower growth in the working age population translates into slower growth in employment, 
Slower growth in employment translates into slower growth in GDP. Um, it's really just uh, it's really just simple arith arithmetic. Um, the working age population as recently as the 1990s and early 2000s was growing at 1.5% per year. Um, it's now growing at 2% per year. Uh, and the CBO projects it'll be growing at between uh, 0.2 and 0.3% per year out through the 2050s and, and beyond. Um, unless something else changes, <laughs> that translates you know, that 1.2 percentage point difference, right, between the prior growth rate in the working age population and the projected one, that knocks 1.2% off of potential GDP growth. And that's what the project CBO projections show as well. Um, and basically, just, we'll be growing in the future at half the rate, uh, half of our post-war average. And that's optimistic. And, and that's the, the real negative feedback loop that I don't think gets enough attention is that the lower, uh, slower growing economy is going to have to provide the goods and services to sustain a rising elderly population. And that's really a, a terrible combination. Um, Tori? One obvious solution to this is immigration correct? Wouldn't uh, a, a reform, and I mean legal immigration, right? I'm not talking about open borders or anything like that, but obviously one solution here, wouldn't it be to reform our immigration laws? Um, yeah, I, I think conceptually, you know, thinking about the aging of the population and the impact on the budget and the economy, um, you, you, you want to separate potential solutions, or sometimes I do anyway, analytically, into two groups. And the first group is, gee, is there some way we can alter the severity of the aging trend itself, right? And then the second group is, okay, at, at any given level of aging, at any given aging trend, can we make the economy function better? Can we make the fiscal burden more, more bearable? So as you suggested, I mean, the obvious place to start uh, 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 is, with, um, is with immigration. Um, immigration is, is already the only reason that the United States still has a growing working age population. And immigration long-term makes a huge difference. The UN um, very usefully, uh, uh, along with their, with their uh, uh, standard um, projection publishes a zero net migration projection. Um, and in their standard projection, uh, the U.S. working age population out to 2075, um, their standard projection includes an assumption of continued immigration uh, at, at about its historical level, um, grows by 5%. Without net immigration, it contracts by 25%. Um, you know, it used to be that immigration, when we had replacement level fertility, was what kept the workforce and economy growing. In the future, it's what will keep it from shrinking. Mm -hmm. uh, what we need, Tori, we need a grand bargain. <laughs> we need a grand bargain. <laughs> you, 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 you have to deal with people on the Hill. I don't. So I can. <laughs> well, can, I, can I put my political hat on for a moment and editorialize? I. I I think one of the big shocking things with the Biden administration has been the way the Republicans have rolled over 
on entitlement reform, the whole stand up for seniors debacle during the, the president's uh, uh, address before Congress, State of the Union address last year, just shocked the heck out of me. Because when you look at policies to preserve Social Security, I mean, let's face it, set of Social Security and Medicare, you know, within the next 10 years, the trust funds are going to run out of money. OK, so we got to do something. That forcing event is here. Democrats would love to do nothing up until that point, because the two solutions that you can turn on overnight, raise taxes on the wealthy, which is really popular, and enact immigration reform, which is kind of problematic for Republicans of both parts. They don't they don't like to raise taxes and they certainly have not been in favor of immigration reform. So the longer they delay and the more they buy into this, oh, well, we can't touch Social Security and Medicare, the more and more they're forcing domestic policy into a box canyon that they hate. And so I I just don't understand why Republicans aren't being more outspoken about, hey, we've got this demographic problem. Hey, we've got this funding problem. Hey, let's do something about it now. Um, It it just to me, it seems really, really, really short sighted. Um, Steve, you want to get us out of the political weeds here and let's get back into the policy weeds. (laughs) I I was going to stick with the politics, but. uh, Oh, go ahead. Uh, That's fine. (laughs) No, I just uh, drawing some parallels. I mean, you know, we, we saw what happened in France back over the last few months where they proposed to raise their retirement age from 62 to 64. I mean, you know, we, as you may recall, I mean, back in 1983, Congress voted to raise the retirement age here in the U.S., but what's not, I guess, a little different than what France is doing, I mean, we continue to allow you to retire at 62. We didn't We didn't eliminate the early or raise the early retirement age. What we did is we raised the, the quote, normal or full retirement age. And, and all that means is that you have to wait longer to get your full benefit you can still collect at 62, but it's a reduced amount. And I, I guess, Richard, to the extent you've looked around other, other countries, I mean, is the U.S. unique in that regard in terms of allowing, can, even though we're raising the full retirement age, we continue to allow reduced benefits at early retirement, whereas it appears France, by raising their early retirement age, literally, I mean, you, you can, by, by 2030, you can no longer retire at 62 you'd have to wait until 64. I I don't think we're unique, Steve, but you're right that a lot of European countries, and and France is a laggard there, have, we can say, raised their early retirement ages, uh, uh, because in effect, that's what they've done. Um, But many many of them had special early retirement programs and even backdoor routes to early retirement through the disability system um, um, or the, the or unemployment insurance, where the rules for older workers were much laxer, so these programs sort of functioned uh, in effect as early retirement programs, and all of that has been swept away uh, over the past uh, uh, over the past few decades. Um, the difference between most of Europe and the United States uh, is not so much the retirement age; it, it, it's that. In the United States, you may still have the option to retire at 62, but a lot of people still work at 66, 67, 68, 69, 70, right? Labor force participation in most European countries drops off dramatically, right? Once you've reached the official retirement age, we have a higher labor force participation rate. There's some exceptions like Sweden and Iceland and so on, but uh, 
Labor force participation past 65 in most European countries is still very low. It's higher here. So how much of that is due to policy in terms of replacement rates, how, how generous the programs are versus, you know, we, yeah. we emphasize yeah. personal accounts, you know, IRAs and employer. Replacement rates in Europe tend to be more generous. Labor markets are also less flexible, making it harder for, 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 for people to sort of reposition, change careers, work part time, you know, uh, unretire, partial retire, all of, all of of that. But I, I'm sort of glad you brought it around to this because that's along with immigration. Um, that's the second thing you can do. You can increase. Well, that, that's in the second bin, which is how do you make the economy function more efficiently? Um, but higher labor force participation at older ages. Um, and I think also we should pay some attention to trying to close this gap we talked about between between ideal and actual uh, uh, ideal and actual fertility by putting in place policies that make it easier for young people to, young women in particular, to do both of the things that they want to do and need to do. Well, at least we can end on some sort of a, uh, an optimistic note that there, there, there may be some things that, uh, that can be done. Uh, but that if- is a long-term solution, right? A new child today doesn't make a productive new worker for another 25 years, probably. I, I'm gonna speak for the women here. Uh- you know, we're not turning back. I, I you know, we, we uh, are loving the economic freedom that we have from, you know, earning our own paycheck. We're, we're not turning back. <laughs> so or, deal with or, it, America. Should, Women are in the workforce. <laughs> we're yeah. staying. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, there's a deep systemic issues that people just tend to overlook completely. The long term economic outlook is driven in part by forces like uh, workforce participation and fertility rates and uh, you know, things that people don't necessarily think about as budget issues, but uh, but they are. So you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I have been talking with Richard Jackson, president of the Global Aging Institute, about the critical role that demographics play in our nation's fiscal and economic future. Richard, as always, thanks for your insight. And when we come back from the break, I'll ask Tori and Steve about some recent developments on the budget and the economy. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and uh, Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are going to talk a little about the recent economic developments. Um, Tori, there was a there was a very interesting jobs report that came mm-hmm. out uh, last week on the, you know, the jobs picture for uh, for June. Um, what uh, stood out for you? <laughs> um, I think the thing that stood out to me was just the expectations I had going into it. You know, before the a day or two before the BLS jobs report came out, the ADP payroll report came out and, you know, it told us to expect something close to 500,000 new jobs. But what we saw for June employment from the Bureau of Labor Statistics was 209,000 jobs, which was uh, good in that it's, you know, it's positive. Um, the job market, despite, you know, 10 months or excuse me, a year of, of increases and in interest rate increases from the Federal Reserve, the job market continues to add jobs. So that's great. Um, but the increase uh, in the number of jobs that we're creating uh, is slowing each month. Um, so, uh, you know, the unemployment rate uh, actually dropped a little bit from 3.7 to 3.6 per- percent. 
labor force participation rate has been steady. So that, that was awesome. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, what's surprising me at this point is this sort of disconnect between the ADP payroll report, which is actually a, you know, a, a, a measure of, of accounts, the payroll transactions from large employers, and then the survey data that we're getting from the BLS. You know, there's sort of, you know, which way is the economy going? Um, and even within the BLS survey, you know, the top line number showed some pretty strong uh, growth in jobs. But when you look beneath the headline number, there's still some things that, you know, give you a little bit of concerns. Are these sort of indicators of this recession that we've been waiting for, for a year now? Um, you know, there was a, uh, there was a big spike in unemployment among African-Americans from 4.7% in April unemployment rate to 6% in June. That's a big jump over two months. Um, and the number of people who could only find part-time work, you know, they wanted full-time, but only could find part-time work that jumped 11%. So you look at those numbers and you wonder, is there something, are these the, the beginning signs, the initial signs of some softening in the, the labor market? Don't know. You know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see what other data bears out. They also uh, revised downwards some of the previous month's uh, growth as well, I think. Exactly. That was a that was a, a surprise too. The uh, May, the April May jobs report, uh, those two reports were revised down collectively by one hundred and ten thousand. So that suggests that the the May report, uh, which was a big barn burner, uh, was probably less robust than than we thought. And where were the job gains? I mean, were they concentrated in any particular industry? So most of the job gains uh, of the 209, uh, 120,000 uh, were in the service sector. So, you know, it's it's the story that we've been telling for a while now, which is the, the goods producing sector, which recovered very quickly um, and uh, after COVID. And now we're moving as as consumers get out of their house and, and stop buying stuff, you know, for they're not stuck at home anymore. They're starting to travel and go to restaurants and see movies. Uh, we're starting to see uh, big gains in service employment. So yeah, 120,000 uh, of those 209 were in uh, services. And then there was a big jump, 60, uh, in government employment. So uh, that was that was interesting. Coming up, Steve, uh, the Fed is going to be meeting again in a couple of weeks to decide on interest rates. And they always take these numbers into consideration. So what do you think uh, if you're on the Federal Reserve Board? Um, you know, we've got uh, jobs still growing, um, but slowing in the uh, the the rate, um, you know, uh, wage and uh, wages are still going up at a pretty good clip. So there there are some mixed messages about whether, you know, the Fed's policies to date have been working to slow things. Or whether they, uh, you know, need to to slow things a bit more with another rate hike. So, you know, what do you think? Well, you know, the, the Fed is still chasing the elusive soft landing. Uh, I mean, you know, as, as you recall, they they took a pause last month and held the Fed funds rate target, you know, at five percent. Um, you know, that, that was generally the everyone's expectation. But I mean, you know, as the jobs numbers sort of point out, I mean, the Fed is you know, we we may be at an inflection point. I mean, uh, job growth is slowing. Unemployment is still, you know, actually dropped a little. So, you know, but but the problem is, is inflation is still persistently high. 
But you know, as of last month, the the both the CPI, the the normal inflation measure, as well as the Fed's preferred measure, uh, those both were running around four percent. And the core measure, where you take out uh, food and energy, those numbers were both close to five percent. So, you know, as long I mean, there and of course the Fed's target is two percent. So, as long as 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 inflation, however you measure it, is in the range of four to five percent. You know the Fed hasn't reached its goal of, you know, of its inflation target, and you know while the economy is slowing, and and generally you see, uh, you know, in order to really bring inflation down historically, the Fed has had to push interest rates up above the inflation rate, um, which you know they're they're marginally there now. If inflation numbers, this next round of numbers come down. Um, you know, the, the Fed, you know, they're, they're going to have to decide, do they continue to pause and think that, you know, we've we've done enough and we're going to wait and see what happens? Although I think at this point, the markets are still expecting another increase that that while, you know, the, the economy and the, the employment appears to be fairly strong, inflation is still persistent. And to get that last little nudge of inflation from four and five percent down Moving downward more uh, quickly to to the two percent range, I, you know, I, I don't, I'm not quite sure they can pause yet. And if they do raise rates again another quarter point in the next meeting, um, you know, we'll have to wait and see whether that tips the uh, the jobs numbers into the negative category uh, before it reduces inflation uh, to the to the range that they're looking for and. It's just going to be a. I think it's going to be a month-to-month process for the rest of this year, where the Fed kind of has to wait and see, you know, how much more they think they need to do to to achieve their goal. And it's it's going to be a. I think a a, a slow a slow drawn-out process for the rest of the year. Yeah, if you're uh, running for office in 2024, that doesn't sound good because it's like maybe the maybe the pain will be postponed. But it could be avoided altogether if they get that uh, stick, that soft landing. Yeah. You know, one one thing that Tori had mentioned, and uh, I, I I don't know, we've we've discussed it among the three of us, um, and not necessarily known the answer, but I want to flag the issue is it's the service sector that's growing mm-hmm. uh, in jobs, and whether that makes the Fed's task a little bit more difficult because. The tools that it has available or the tool that it has available has more of an impact on the goods sector of the economy. So just how how does that factor into their decision? Well, it just makes their job harder. I mean, you know, if you you don't have the right tool for the job, you can only use the tool that you have. And it's that that's that's part of the problem. Yeah. When it's wage inflation in the service sector that's driving inflation and you're using interest rates to tame inflation if 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 i don't know this for you know any real fact but if the service sector is not really interest rate sensitive or you know you can make the argument that you know consumer debt is interest rate sensitive if wages in the service sector are growing faster than inflation then you know the fed's tool interest rate increases may not do a great job of taming inflation, at least not without creating some big havoc, which 
is why you hear these economists talking again and again and again about how we're not going to get out of this until the Fed creates a recession. You know, I mean, soft landing is nice, but it seems they, they argue that, you know, it's in, improbable, possibly because you've got one sector of the economy that's incredibly stubborn and not sensitive to interest rate increases. Yeah. And, and core, core inflation has been pretty stubbornly high, too. I mean, it's, you know, and, and so that's, again, I, I guess another reason why you economists think that you can't get back down to a 2% inflation rate uh, without further, for lack of a better term, damage to the uh, labor market. The Fed's going to have a whole encyclopedia full of information when they meet at the end of the month. So they'll have, you know, new jobs numbers and new inflation data. My money's on a 25 basis point increase. I I I think think we're all in agreement there. Take that to the bank. Um, uh, You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I have been talking about uh, recent uh, developments in the uh, economy. That's all the time we have for this week. Uh, Tune in again next week when I'll be back with another edition of Facing the Future. 